Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. We are a rewatch pod for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along in my trip through watching all of Babylon 5 for the first time are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Hello! 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 Let's go through a little bit about how this is going to go. Each episode, we're going to be going through a couple episodes of Babylon 5, uh, we'll try to say which ones we do uh, at the end of the previous episode. And we're going to talk about them, and we're going to find what we like, what we don't like, and uh, I'm going to finally finish this damn show. Let's meet our two, my two, my two guides on this. Uh, Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. I first watched Babylon 5 as a small child back when it was originally airing, and it is like perfect nostalgia viewing it is a show i absolutely love you can find me as one of the co-hosts on complete discography along with justin um and you can find me and you can find me on twitter at the underscore me and i and jude i'm jude uh i also watched babylon 5 when it was airing on the very notable channel upn which was definitely quality television Uh, For me, Babylon 5 was a novel storytelling experience. Uh, I hadn't seen anything like the sort of arc storytelling of Babylon 5, and that's why it stuck with me for so long. I wore through two copies of the DVDs that I bought at Best Buy on sale and was a little offended that they were so cheap and have been a fan uh, ever since. Uh, You can find me... On Twitter, at Aramidic Jude, or on one of my other podcasts, uh, Garbage of the Five Rings, or Athrobeth. And then a little about me. My name is Justin. I have never watched Babylon 5 before. Which, sorry, that is a incomplete truth. I have attempted to watch Babylon 5 multiple times. I have gotten about five episodes in each time before the streaming service I was watching it on dropped Babylon 5. Um, it's it's a process that repeats itself every three years. We finally bit the bullet, and I just bought it. My pronouns, I use they, them, or he, him pronouns, and you can find me on the Complete Discography podcast with Anna. I am at Justin, J-U-S-T-E-N, writes on Twitter, um, where you can listen, where you can get a sneak preview of our episodes and find me live-tweeting whatever medium I'm, I'm consuming. And I should probably say that my pronouns are she, her. And mine are he, him. Excellent. So, we are covering the first four episodes of Babylon 5 in its standard television run. Um, As a group, it it was a mutual decision that we are going to skip the... Uh, pilot that was aired a year before Midnight on the Firing Line, The Gathering. Um, We'll come back to that at some point. 
We might still make you watch it at some point. I'm sure. I was going to say we're going to save it for some sort of like a I don't know punishment episode or something. I'll mail uh, you a bottle bottle of liquor, Justin. Uh, I should be bored of it at my house. Um, that was what got me through uh, the first three months of quarantine. Um, <laughs> all right. So I'm going to do like a this is what I this is what I knew about Babylon 5 coming in and what I got from like the first episode about the political situation. Cool. Just for just for doing this here. Earth is now semi-united. It's got a quasi-liberal government um, that has expanded to incorporate a Mars colony, which has some weird legal stuff that I that I haven't quite picked up on yet on what it's on what Mars's status is. Um, Earth is part of a interstellar community um 10 years before the show started they wrapped up a war with the minbari who are i'm going to say space elves with cool bony crowns um you're not wrong i mean they 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 really give me elf vibes yeah that we can talk about the minbari aesthetic at some point um it's not not problematic, but it's not like overtly awful, but there's definitely some stuff going on there. There are three other main races that we are dealing with here. There are the Centauri. The Centauri are a great interstellar republic. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> nice. I'm so proud. That's very good. so good. Uh, the Centauri, the Centauri Empire has existed for eons upon eons. Will stand the test of time. Uh, they are a, we'll say, pastiche of I would say the Roman Empire and the British imperialism. Um, but the sun is setting on them. Um, in fact, our or our third big alien players are a former subject of them, the Narn, who spent a century being occupied by the Centauri decided that really sucked and went hyper aggressive imperialistic in response. And then we have our, uh, fourth alien race and fifth member of the council on Babylon five, the Vorlons. The Vorlons are shrug emoji. They're mysterious. They, they are, they are the GM, uh, they are the GM NPC who is just there to not do anything and dispense unhelpful uh, responses. Extremely accurate. Yeah, that, that pretty much sums up uh, our entire experience for uh, listener for listener verisimilitude. I have watched season one before we did this because I have no restraint. Yeah. All right. Let's start with our episode one of season one, Midnight on the Firing Line, written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Richard Compton. We are going to be going through a... We're going to try and keep it brief. I promise you, listeners. Um, Lies. We're going to do a brief summary of the episode, uh, and then we're going to talk about it. Um, So, Midnight on the Firing Line. 
We get our first introduction to the workings of Babylon 5 with a crisis. There has been a surprise attack on the Centauri colony of Ragesh 3. While we get a feel for the political situation of the galaxy throughout this current crisis, there have been a series of raider attacks on supply convoys on shipping lanes near the station that the crew have been investigating. The Ragesh 3 situation quickly escalates with two facts. That Londo Malari's nephew, Karn, was one of the senior officers in the Ragesh 3 outpost, and that the Narn are behind the attack. Commander Jeffrey Sinclair tries to create a coalition to sanction the Narn for the attack, while Londo learns that the Centauri government plans to do nothing in response. Sinclair's attempts to get military backing for the intervention fall short as Earth is approaching an election and the Senate does not want to get at things hairy, but he decides to try and get around being told to abstain by having Commander Susan Ivanova take his place in the council while he goes off at a plane to shoot shit. <laughs> Honestly, goals. Uh, and she tragically didn't hear anything about any orders whatsoever. Yeah. Definitely. Establishing very early on uh, his character, what you can expect from Commander Sinclair. In the council chamber, uh, Ambassador Jakar of the Narn regime explains that the reason for the attack was that Ragesh III was once a Narn colony. For further validity, he shows a message of Londo's nephew, Karn, reading a message under duress to state that the Ragesh III colony had invited the Narn. All charges against the Narn are dismissed. Uh, Londo, infuriated, assembles a weapon to kill Jakar, but Talia Winters, resident telepath, picks up on his hostility and has Garibaldi back Londo down. Meanwhile, Jakar is summoned by Sinclair with news. Those raiders, the ones that were raiding the shipping lanes, those were being supplied by the Narn with high-powered weapons. And... To top it off, Sinclair captured the Narn officer who was supervising the weapons to prove it. Sinclair offers Jakar a deal. The Narn pull out of Ragesh 3, and the weapons deals won't be exposed. Jakar agrees. One little thread that has been going throughout this episode is Winters trying to report in to Ivanova as a station protocol, but Ivanova keeps ducking her. Winters finds in a barroom scene that Ivanova's icy behaviors towards her are that Ivanova's mother was a telepath. She refused the typical uh, psychor entry and took drugs to suppress her tele- telepathic abilities. This drove her to suicide and led to a general distrust of telepaths. Puts a damper on their relationship to start. Finally, as a busy day in Babylon 5 ends, we get the news that Luis Santiago has been re-elected president. God help us all. All right. So that is our first episode. There is a lot going on for a pilot. For I mean, not a pilot, but an episode one. It's kind of a pilot. Like JMS, like said, it's not a pilot, but it's a pilot because they, you know, the gathering was a year old and a lot of people didn't watch it, so it really was like. They had to do all the work that the pilot did again, for all intents and purposes. Except that he did it way better this time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This does not feel like a pilot from 1994. No. Um, This is like, I think one of the things that 
it really nails down is how chaotic Babylon 5 is. For sure. Like, yeah. There's just so much stuff going on for 45 minutes of television. Yeah, it's packed. Um, the thing that stands out to me every time I watch this episode, or really, I mean, really any episode in the first season, but particularly the, these first couple episodes, is how good the core cast is. Um, Mira Ferlin as Delenn, Andrea Kotsalas as Jakar, um, his Peter name... Jurassic as Londo. Yeah, as Londo, and um, Michael O'Hare as uh, Sinclair, and... Uh, Oh, Claudia what's her Christian. name? I can't. Yeah, thank you. Claudia Christensen as uh, Susan Ivanova. That core group right there are so good. Garibaldi's, I noticed that we're avoiding saying Jerry Doyle as Garibaldi. Because he's not that good. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's basically just... He, he will have episodes in which he's okay eventually. But in these early episodes, he's not. He's just chewing scenery. Um, but that core cast, the the ambassadors and Sinclair and uh, Ivanova, never failed to turn in a good performance, and they put those characters through some stuff. Like, yeah, they are asked to do some some shit in this show, and they never fail to deliver. And right from the right from go, you get to see how good the, that core cast is. Um, and I just, I mean, this show looks a little hokey now. Like, the production values don't hold up fantastically, but the performances do. And you don't even notice the production quality when you watch it. I think I think the only part of it that maybe, ha- like, I think the, the alien prosthetics in the show are pretty good. Like, yeah. they're, they're stellar. Yeah. Um, and for, like, a mid '90s sci-fi show. This is it looks fine. I think the only thing I could say that like just looks out of place is I, it's not out of place, but it just like the first gen CGI looks like something out of a Wing yeah. Commander game. The, which, the yeah. problem is that the CGI is CGI that and it's CGI done in 1994, which was groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> does not, not hold up. It's not like bad. Like we don't have any attempts to do like bad CGI aliens acting with the main cast for a gimmick. Yeah. Because thank God they probably didn't have the budget for it. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, the CGI I think bothers me less than like some of the set dressing, which is like what the nineties imagined the future was going to be like. So it's like, it's like somebody. So much brocade. Yeah. Well, it, it's like a DeLorean and a Trapper Keeper <laughs> fucked. And that's what Babylon 5 looks like sometimes. And, and an explicit tag. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And it's... 19 it's, minutes. It's rough, man. That's, there's some, there are some set dressings, like the Zocalo in particular, where you're just like, woof. Like, Command and Control is fine. It, it looks like any sci-fi set, but... Yeah, some of the some of the like common areas like the, or what what they think social spaces are going to look like. The casinos, the oh, casinos. Yeah, there you go. Oh. The casinos. Um, some of like the like the, the casual wear is also very good. God, it's, it's like the it's like the you know pack and jump suits from Star Trek Next Generation. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Oh. So, uh, yeah. but to my point, you only notice that when it hits like a 13. Like even when it gets up to like a 10 or an 11, you really don't always notice it uh, because that, that core cast is so good. Um, yeah. I, as will become apparent in the course of this podcast, hard Stan, Jakar, and Delenn. Like those are my two favorite characters. Not together, that would be weird. But uh, those are my two favorite characters on this show. Uh, and I think two of the strongest performances on the show, uh, particularly Jakar. I think oh, yeah. every scene he's in is fantastic. And every scene he's in with Malari is just fire. The oh two God. of them... The chemistry, like even in the first episode, like you can tell these are two people who genuinely, completely hate each other. Yeah. And like, I, I think you can like very easily write that into a bad corner very quickly. But it's always, it, it's like always fresh. It's, yeah, it's like a nuanced hatred. Yeah, because they also have this, their relationship very much from the start is of two people who... If one had not colonized and ravaged the other's homeworld, probably would be drinking buddies. Mm-hmm. And that tension there where they constantly are... The, the politics of who they are as ambassadors versus who they are as individuals constantly plays out in the show. And I think it's super fascinating. Yeah. Um and I would add to that that Londo himself is one of my absolute favorite characters. I mean, he is absolute garbage, but he's acted so well. Mm-hmm. And Agreed. he is given such good writing and knows what to do with it. Yeah, totally. It's interesting that you, on your core cast, list um, O'Hare as Sinclair. Because I always feel like he's the weakest link, especially for the first half of the season. Um I don't find his acting very fluid up until we hit around episode 10. It it feels much more like a stage performance to me. I like him. Um, I think he, he has a, a kind of, I don't know. I like what he's doing with it. Um, he, he, he's kind of there. Don't get me wrong. There are parts that are bad. Like I think, Next episode, we're going to talk about the the we're going to talk about the the part where his ex girlfriend comes back, and there is some some choppy water I in believe, those scenes. I with, believe my notes for like those episodes are: I hate straight people. <laughs> valid, <laughs> very valid. Um, um, but, but yeah, that that seems that the acting there is rough. But I think in general, I think he. The character is like this Jesuit-raised fighter pilot that has become kind of this very honor-bound. He's a very honorable warrior. And I think I I see what they were trying to do like with some of the acting choices there. Um, Also. Just a little bit of a death wish. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, And I think it's also worth noting here, and this is not a spoiler, um, he's also, he was also deeply schizophrenic and like going through like aggressive schizophrenic breaks while filming this season. Wow. I um, actually didn't know that. 
Yeah. I, I'm not. That's that's interesting to know. Yeah. Um, um, there were times where, like, he was apparently, like, barely holding on through scenes. Wow. Uh, in, in, while filming this season. Um, and he, he does warm up to the role. I feel like by a few episodes in, it's a lot more fluid in every scene that he's in. But the first yeah. few, I always feel like he's a, it's a little bit of the the opposite of Star Trek Next Generation, where, you know, Stuart was holding the entire first season together. Um, yeah. Whereas it's, he's not yeah. being dragged like Garibaldi. Yeah, he's but, definitely not the the weak. He's definitely not the 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 strongest part of that core crew. But I don't think he's weak. He's not like Garibaldi weak or something like that. Like I think he's doing a good job in a lot of the, in a lot of scenes. But he's definitely not the strongest of that core cast. It's definitely the three ambassadors I think that are the the best of that mm-hmm. core cast. Yeah, yeah, they, they definitely are. They immediately like each one of them has sort of a type and they are ready to fill out. I think the human characters in general take a little bit longer for them to figure out what they're doing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I love Ivanova so much though. Yeah. They, I think she's almost from go. I think they make her slightly less stilted after the first episode. And yeah. that's about it. And then they're like, Nope. Yep. We got it. Yeah, there, there's the. I think like the the best line from like one of the best lines the pilot. Um, I, there's the monologue from Jakar about how he sees himself, like he knows in twenty years or whenever as an old man he and Jakar are going to kill each other. But the best singular line in the the in, in midnight is I have fifteen things to do and they are all annoying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's a mood. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. Agreed. Uh, my, f- I have two like favorite random parts of this episode. Um, the first one is uh, Ivanova's voting philosophy, uh, which I feel is extraordinarily uh, on point. Uh, and helpful for 2020, which is uh, she. I think her her line is um, uh, a president should have a strong chin. Chin, that's right. And um, um, Santiago, Santiago has none, and his vice president has too many. Yes, exactly. Which I think is fantastic advice. Um, so I thought that was very good. Um. It was, it's delivered so well, too. I mean, go watch the scene or, like, fucking find a YouTube yeah. clip of it. Because she's... It's so dry. Uh, the, the, just, like, everything she... Like, everything she says, like, in the first 40 minutes of the episode is just dry and fantastic. Which makes her last scene with Talia just hit so much better. Yeah. 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 Uh, the second thing that I love about this episode is Jakar uh, praising the Spoo, which will become like a thing. Like Spoo <laughs> becomes a thing in Babylon 5. Yeah, it becomes just a bit. Yeah. But so there's this thing called Lurker's Guide. So I'm going to go on a little bit of a safari here. Bear with me. 
Uh, Babylon 5 was a, was a really interesting show because it existed at a time when the internet was first becoming like a thing that people used to talk about stuff. And as a consequence, it had a, it was one of the first shows to really have like a big fandom on the internet. Um, rec.arts.television.babylon5 or whatever the Usenet group was for Babylon 5 was jumping and JMS was on there all the time. And as a consequence, there's all this archived conversation that he had about the episodes. And all that stuff was aggregated into this website way back in the day called Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5, which still exists. You can go and see it. And so for all these episodes, there's fascinating production notes, behind the scenes information, and you get tremendously nonsense write-ups about things like Spoo which is described as, and I'm looking up the thing here. It's too long. I can't read all this. It's, it's entirely too long, but uh, maybe we'll put an excerpt of it in the, in the show notes or we'll put a link or something so you can read this thing. But the short version is it's a, it's a disgusting, it's a widely agreed upon to be the ugliest creature in the galaxy and also the most delicious creature in the galaxy um, it is so easy to keep alive that it that raising being a spoo farmer is like the least respected job in the galaxy, and it's the only creature which the Interstellar Animal Rights Protection League says simply kill them. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also a bit about how like all of the alien races have their own ways to prepare and consume spoo, if yeah, I recall the, correctly. Yeah, the only race that does not openly praise Spoo as being the most delicious food in known space are the ones that eat garbage. And even they like it. They just don't like to admit it. <laughs> oh, the Pakmara. Yeah. Ugh. So, uh, which is just to say, um, it's apparently, oh, and apparently it tastes like meat jello. I don't know how that's supposed to be like the most delicious thing in the galaxy, but that's what he says. I see. Uh, uh, anyway, I mentioned it only to say that Spoo becomes like a running gag and I think it's hilarious. And also to bring up Lurker's Guide, uh, which if you are do a fan of Babylon 5, if you're watching this show for the first time for some reason, uh, definitely hit up Lurker's Guide because it's, it's a, it's a hoot and I'm we'll just, be quoting it extensively. I imagine. I'm just sad that Ask Kosh no longer exists. <laughs> Agreed. Um, it was basically, for context, this was basically an online magic eight ball where you could type in any question and it would respond with yes or perhaps or at the hour of scampering or what <laughs> some sort of koshism. Um, I wanted to say one of my other favorite things with writing this episode is how parsimonious its introduction of the Psychor is and how effective it is. Mm -hmm. Because the Psychor is hugely important throughout the show. And the interaction between Ivanova and Talia Winters is this like perfect microcosm for the Psychor. And she explains precisely what is wrong with the Psychor very efficiently. Um, yeah. And I feel like it's a really good introduction to that chunk of the politics at a very human level that we're 
our first introduction to the psychor is seeing the effects on somebody that it's harmed. Yeah. And 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 meanwhile having this very human introduction to a person who is arguably still being harmed by them by being a member. Yeah, you get a lot of angles of it. You see it Talia is both an ambassador of their propaganda and also a victim at the same time. And you're seeing her interact with someone outside, another victim, but outside of it. And there's a, that conversation is, it's just really great world building and uh, dialogue and writing right there because it, it, as you say, it, it delivers exactly as much as you need to know for the next couple for the next couple of episodes extraordinarily efficiently uh it's really well done and it gives um claudia christensen some really great material to work with as she's talking about her mother yeah um i think star furies are a silly design but that's just that's my only thing uh, I, I I will fight you on that. Star Furies look fly and are and are more functional than your precious X wings. So, Star Furies are so good. Yeah, I I, I a, do like I do like that we have like Newtonian physics in space, mm-hmm. and yeah, um, it 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 it, it, be, it just means that in nine years we're going to get the cool flip and burn shit from BSG Vipers. You haven't even seen the cool stuff. Some of, some of the best stuff Star Furies do. Like they do much fair, cooler fair. stuff. I, in I'm B5. looking forward. I'm looking forward to seeing how they do. I've, I've, they yeah. paved the way for nobler. They've they paved the way for nobler ships. It'd be so amazing to see this show with like the Expanse level, dude. Right. Everything like, and I would love to see like they didn't focus on like gravity or. Etc. in the show, partly because they didn't have the production values for it. Um, I mean, it still operates on some pretty... Like, but yeah, like it is an Allen cylinder. Um, yeah, like the station can, is constantly rotating to generate gravity. Yeah, you can do the calculations and the station um, generates gravity between um, one-third and one-half G. Um, people have done this on like Stack exchange. Of course they have. That's amazing. <laughs> yep. Um, and and if you look at the, if you look at like the, especially in particular the Earth ships, they all are using like very conventional physics technology. Not so much for a bunch of the other alien races. Yeah. But Earth, like Earth level of technology is arguably substantially behind that of the expanse it's just that they got jump gates and hyperspace and aliens alien friends season one episode two soul hunter written by j michael straczynski and directed by jim johnston we start off our second episode with the station getting a new medical officer dr stephen franklin after the previous medical officer dr kyle was brought back to earth uh and then we have a strange alien ship damaged coming from the jump gate sinclair departs the station in a star fury and is able to tow the ship back in before it collides 
They take the one survivor from the ship, an unknown alien, to Bed Lab. Ambassador Delenn accompanies Sinclair there, where she, upon seeing the alien, tries to kill him. The As alien, one does. Yeah. Valid. I, I know that sometimes I've walked in, seen somebody in the hospital, and thought, I just should pull a piece on him and start blasting. <laughs> the alien is, in fact, a soul hunter. Part of an order of aliens who are committed to capturing the souls of important figures. The Minbari fear the soul hunters as a society, as they view any theft of souls as a terrible crime. In the Isolab later, the soul hunter is awakened by the death of a con man and speaks with Dr. Franklin. He explains, from his point of view, that the goal of the soul hunters is to preserve special souls so that they can be saved for history. When Sinclair later asks about the Minbari, the soul hunter reveals that they hold a grudge against the Minbari for preventing them from taking the soul of Dukat, a previous leader, on the eve of the Earth-Minbari War. Delenn later visits the Soul Hunter to question where his collection is kept. The Soul Hunter ignores any threats she gives, but does recognize her as Satai, one of the Grey Council. After Delenn retreats, the Soul Hunter breaks out. He recovers his collection of souls from a hidden panel on the ship, then sneaks through the station. A second Soul Hunter then appears on a ship, and explains to Sinclair when he boards that his brother, Soul Hunter, has gone rogue, taking souls by force and killing to ensure that he does not lose them, something forbidden by their order. While Sinclair is learning all this, Delenn is kidnapped by the Soul Hunter so he can harvest hers. As the Soul Hunter begins the slow process of extracting Delenn's soul, he looks into what he is extracting and sees that she is planning something that shocks him. Sinclair is able to track down the Soul Hunter and injure him, while the Hunter declares that Delenn is Satai and that she is using Sinclair. Sinclair turns the machine the Soul Hunter was using on Delenn on the Soul Hunter, killing him. With the rogue Soul Hunter gone, the second Soul Hunter leaves, and and Sinclair informs him that Babylon 5 is off-limits to his kind. After the action, Sinclair looks up the word Satai, discovering it as the title for a member of the Grey Council. He doesn't believe it, as he doesn't think it makes sense for a member of the Council to be an ambassador. Our closing scene is Delenn, who we see has retrieved the Soul Hunter's collection and releases the trapped souls. Does this episode have a B-plot? It doesn't. Yeah, it's kind of focused. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. I think I, I got to go straight into the spoilers. So uh, take off your headphones, Justin. Stand by. It is bananas to me that we are on episode the fuck two and they are seeding the soul stuff that they are doing. They're going to do with Sinclair. Oh, my God. Yes. And and they're also the- seeding all of the Delenn like future shit yeah, but well, yeah the whole like human minbari soul migration thing and the like all that plot uh the the all of that stuff it's it's episode the fuck too and he's already seeding this that's aggressive planning even by modern prestige television standards to be like yeah oh it's episode two here have some plot threads motherfuckers yeah, like, and you don't even realize that it's a plot threat until episode two, season one. 
where well, even Lanier dropped even, that fucking bomb. Yeah, it, we're talking like season. What episode is it that Sinclair turns into fucking Valen? Like that's like season three. Yeah, that's season three. Like some shit goes down. <laughs> so I just think it's real impressive that he's seeding stuff so early and maybe he's just a super talented writer and he was just like oh yeah i wrote that thing i'll pick that up but no he isn't like we know that he like pre-planned all these arcs way out in advance yeah. it's just real impressive that yeah. he pulled that off because okay. the, the entire five seasons were all plotted okay jeez did you give your dissertation <laughs> uh, pretty much yes <laughs> The uh, other thing that this episode has that I that always makes me laugh is uh, Franklin's arrival, where he like saunters through uh, the arrivals and greets Sinclair, and it's it's a little bit weird. It's like every now and then they so Franklin. It should be noted if you are watching this or listening to this and haven't watched the show for some batshit reason. Uh, Franklin, Franklin is the first person of color, human person of color on our staff, on the staff. Um, and he mostly doesn't act like it. Do you, if, um, if you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But when he first enters, he's got this very like casual attitude and then he immediately goes into doctor mode and he stays there like 99% of the time that he's on the show. Um, but they, the way that they handle him, like how, how he's allowed to be casual and how he acts when he's being off duty is a, little, a thing. little stereotyped. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a little uncomfortable. Uh, and you, the, you see that from him, like, the second he steps onto the onto Babylon Five, and it didn't bother me the first time I watched it, but watching it now, it's like, Ugh, okay, I wouldn't have taken that one. I would have asked for another take of that, but I mean, it was ninety three, man. Like they public, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. Vampire the Masquerade, like yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of dubious uh, stuff being published and and made so do we want to do yeah. which do, do we want to do as an ending bit which vampire clan is each member of the of Babylon Fire? oh fear no <laughs> that's that's some rough trade right there <laughs> um, um will space you all <laughs> <laughs> yeah otherwise uh truth be told i don't love this episode um yeah it's it's funny for an episode with like that much spoiler material. It's pretty boring. It feels it. It feels weirdly generic to me. Like yeah. despite all of the tie-ins to the broader plot, it feels like a. It feels like a very generic monster of the week. Um, it doesn't feel like it has any, it doesn't have the political intrigue really other than like soul hunter bad. Yeah. Mimbari don't like soul hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. There's, there's nothing of the, like there's no Jakar Londo interactions. Um, there's not even really solid of Anava content. Yeah. I, I do like the introduction of like, spirituality 
And that's going to be a thing that really kicks off here. I think there is like we get we get three different like we get three different people's like view on like what is a soul in the 23rd century. Like mm-hmm. I I don't I it's not stated in the show but like Dr. Franklin prescribes a very like rational atheist point of view. He's like we cannot quantify what a soul is. It doesn't exist. Um the um the Minbari believe as a culture that souls are immortal and return to the gestalt Minbari to be reborn in the next generation, and that any removal of them is the true death. And then you have the soul hunters, which I, I don't even think that the... Well, I'll, I'll get on her, theirs, and, uh, but they think that souls are ephemeral, They that souls die, and that their job is to save important souls. And, like, from just reviewing the episode, like, I, I rewatched over the weekend, I, like, apart from, like, the Minbari obviously have their view of it, which is very anti-Soul Hunter, and a lot of aliens find them weird and scary. But I don't think that, like, from a narrative standpoint, apart from the, the rogue Soul Hunter who is there, who decides I don't want to risk losing souls so I'm just going to take them by killing people it doesn't ever really portray what they're doing as something that is evil right but we have a lot of the a lot of the aliens end up kind of on an exodus from the station while the soul hunter is there solely because the soul hunter is a death omen yeah um yeah uh and and not just a death omen but like um shit gonna go down death omen like they come only for the deaths of important people and significant events so i don't blame them for getting getting out yeah, of dodge I, I i don't think the like yeah and like i think that's like oh hey if you're an entire galaxy that's like oh hey all of our cultures have this thing about soul hunters like um this is the first episode where i started looking at shit on learner's guide um and specifically, it's like Earth probably has legends about soul hunters. Uh, they're just not they're just not ones that we recognize. Um, and um, there's a specific moment uh, or there, there's a specific line from one of uh, J. Michael Straczynski's Usenet posts where uh, he's talking about this episode and somebody asked him, who is right, the soul hunter or the Minbari? And his answer is just yes. Yeah. JMS uh, confirmed for Kosh. Uh, oh, and and I really, just as a broader thing that we're starting to see now, I really love the way that B5 approaches spirituality and religion as opposed to a lot of the um, far future sci-fi, like especially Star Trek, where a lot of Star Trek really portrays spirituality or religion as like a thing of the past or a thing of like, you know, backward alien races more or less. Um, or, you know, it's very like traditional and stodgy, um, which, you know, when I was younger, that didn't really bother me. But as I rewatched Star Trek times, um, it's grown to be something that really, really bothers me. Um, and something that I'm really uncomfortable with versus here, you know, we're, we'll see lots more of this over the show, but it's 
the the Mimbari's beliefs and and the Soul Hunter's beliefs, um, other than that he's like you know doing a murder, um, are being honestly portrayed very respectfully and like they're there's something that are that should be respected by the viewer and the other characters and the writing, etc. But yeah, I think I think the, the like this also does maybe a I think it like it is a monster of the week episode. It's like it's procedural science fiction. There is a problem that there is a moral question that comes from it, but it's not trying to tell you this is a this is what we believe on the issue i think it's just presenting a problem here like there are there are practical ramifications to this problem on the station like we want ambassador to lend to live um i i this is about the point where i started thinking i really like to knowing my track record with characters i like in shows she's probably done a war crime <laughs> Listeners, uh, Jude just coughed into his elbow when I chimed sure were spoilers. Meanwhile, I, you know, made a hissing noise that Aaron's going to hate me for. <laughs> Aaron is, for the record, our silent, uh, silent but wonderful, our, our, our lethal protector, our dark knight in the booth. Our, Aaron's our Zathras. Our... Uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 I like that religion is treated, ironically, Earth's, uh, like Franklin sort of treated almost a little bit parochial for being so uh, skeptical. Yeah. Um, and I, we'll see this in a later episode, too, uh, when Catherine Sakai, not my favorite character... Um, uh, it's a shame because I like everything about her character on paper but man just it's like it's like somehow the show every time she's on the screen it morphs into a 90s rom-com yeah well not except it's not funny and it's not romantic it's just (laughs) that's why that's why I said 90s Jude oh burn uh anyway my point there was just um any like they make a point over and over of being like anytime a human is like skeptical of an alien when an alien says some impossible shit you know that human's in for some fucking trouble they're like oh there's no such thing as a soul you can't you know that planet you know that planet's an uninhabited like you're just like, oh, you went and put Chekhov's gun on the table. You done fucked up now. Yeah. You you took Chekhov's gun off the rack, slammed a fifty cal magazine into it, racked the sl- uh, racked the action, and then just started swinging it around. Yeah. So, it's it's funny to me. I like that about the show that humans sort of arrogant uh, parochialism about spirituality and the unknown is really directly lambasted throughout the show. Yeah. We have we want to do the bits and bobs for this episode. Yeah. I just really uh, enjoy W. Morgan Shepard. Right? Uh, he's, he's very good. He's the actor who plays the Soul Hunter. Um, and if you have watched any science fiction, 
in the last 30 years, the minute he opens his mouth, you're going to be like, oh, fuck, who is that guy? Um, also, fun fact, he's Mark Shepard, who also is in, like, everything. He's Mark Shepard's dad. Yeah. So yeah. And, and they actually, on several things, um, notably Doctor Who, they play the older and younger versions of themselves or father and son. It's great. That's cool. I really enjoy it. Uh, personally, for me, uh, the thing I always remember him for is the the voice of the AI system on Sequest DSV, which is admittedly <laughs> a bit of a niche reference. Um, but yeah, that's where his voice is so distinctive. That's where I remember it from. Yeah. It was a hologram projected onto uh, a bunch of steam or smoke sprayed in the air. It was, it was high tech. I'm, I'm going through, I'm going through just things that I recognize him from, but the most important one is, um, for those of us who enjoy strategy games out there, he is the narrator of pretty much the entire game in Civilization V. Yep. So, like, anytime you research a new technology, you get this pithy quote from somebody historical read by him. Yeah. Yep. He, he was, as far as I can tell, wonderful. Yeah. Man, his fucking, bibli- his uh, filmography is bananas. I mean, just absolutely insane. Go check it out on Wikipedia or IMDb. He has been in so much stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. And 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 Mark Shepard, too. Yeah. Yeah, the two of them. That's crazy. Um, my last little note on this episode is that uh, the ship that Dr. Franklin uh, comes in on is the Asimov, uh, which uh, this episode was penned in the recent time after Isaac Asimov's death. Uh, so JMS named the ship after him as a tribute. And because we realized the time for this episode, we are going to be cutting this and join us next time where we are going to be covering the next two episodes of Babylon 5, Born to the Purple, and Infection. Until next time, be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license. recording.